Hello. Wait, you're supposed to say hi first. <laughs> no, this week it's your, yeah. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, hi, hi Raphael. Yeah. That That's, uh, wait, we just flipped it. We did a 180. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we flipped and reversed it. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I'm in Utrecht, the Netherlands. Yeah, what are you doing there? My sister's getting married in two weeks. Oh, you're there. And on Christina had to go to Australia for three weeks. So then, and I had to do some uh, different textile stuff, and we combined everything. And yeah, mm-hmm. I like Utrecht but, though more than I like Amsterdam. Oh no, everyone in Amsterdam's gonna hate me. <laughs> <laughs> it has this kind of like, um, like kind of like college community feel, or something like smaller town. It is. Even, yeah. Even though Amsterdam's yeah. super small, Utrecht's even smaller, and I don't know, there's something I like about that. I don't know. It always feels like I'm running into yeah, college Amsterdam kids. Yeah, Amsterdam is funny. It, 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 I think it's still, it, I'm getting used to it now, but it, it's very hard to process in the brain whether it's a city or a village. Yeah, they're both, I mean, that whole, I think, that's how I feel whenever I'm, and well, actually, I should say I've only ever been to those two places in the Netherlands, so you'd have to tell me if outside of... That you know. No, but it, it, what I mean more, and we talked about that in the small episodes, uh, uh, small countries episode was maybe the second episode we did. But when you're an artist and you're like, should I move to the big city? And then when you live in Utrecht or Amsterdam, the the level of conversation is quite civilized and the people are quite cultured. Mm-hmm. So you think this is a city, and it is a city, yeah. but it's not. And the, Amsterdam is not even a million people, but there's a lot of interesting things going on. So you're like. Hmm. Maybe I don't have to travel. This is quite a nice place. But then, most artists uh, that I know that ended up leaving. Mm, I mean, it, it's tough. I, I, there was a statistic that came out this week. We're not going to make this episode about cities, but like that, I now live in the fifth most expensive city by um, you know, for, in terms of income in the world, in Toronto. So it's more expensive than New York officially now. <laughs> you like, mean more expensive compared to the average income? Or? That's right. Yeah. So to live here yeah. is like you're, a, you know, a more expensive for a lower quality of life than New York, which is sad because, like, I've always said that's why I don't live in New York. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. Like, um, Amsterdam used to be way cheaper than London and Paris, and it, like London and Paris are the the gold standard of the European cities, and then. Uh, mm-hmm. I moved to New York and then sometimes I'll check real estate prices and always think like, okay, you know, once I have a bag of money, I'll just move back to Amsterdam and it'll be comfortable. Well, I should say that this statistic, then, I, yeah, is for cities over 5 million. So like Amsterdam wouldn't even fall in that, isn't really yeah. a big city. So it's, anyway. But my point is that uh, Amsterdam is getting expensive faster than New York is. So I'm like, mm. okay, the salaries in New York are higher. So if we would move, Christina would make less. So we would kind of, our standard of living would be similar. Or, yeah, it, it's not... It's not as simple as like, oh, New York's expensive. No, I don't think New York is expensive. Uh, at this point now, I think New York is like kind of a middle... I know people are going to like call me to say I'm wrong or write in, but because my brother, his rent is like half of what rent would be here. He lives in New- in Queens in New York. New York is just such a, such a large, vast geography. If you're, if you're looking for, a f- and there's great rent control on certain instances. I don't know. Um, well, rent control is if you were born in the 1920s <laughs> or if you win the lottery. I read a story about a woman who was paying like a dollar a month in Greenwich Village or something like that. But Yeah, yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are all just myths. Anyway, that's not what we wanted to talk about this week. Anyway, anyway. I feel like it's a common refrain. It's like the weather, the cost of living. That's just like millennial life. I mean, 
neither of us. Yeah, is yeah, more. the guilt of your success. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But this week, I, you know, what's on my mind is I, I'm about to go to Chicago um, to do sort of a, a presentation and. WWDC and Google I.O. were last uh, last week and the week before, and uh, this week is E3. There are all these like press conferences and presentations happening. I thought it would be interesting to talk about that format and like how it yeah. got to be what it is. Um, and they're the new fashion shows. Like I don't think anybody is like, oh, bell bottoms are over. We have to dress like Miami Vice now. Like there's no announcement of this is the new fashion, but there's definitely like, oh, now it's AR. We're all switching to that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it might as well be like Karl Lagerfeld or uh, rest in peace, Kate Spade. Yeah, but, on stage but who knows something. what Karl Lagerfeld is saying or whoever? Nobody yeah. knows, and everybody knows. That, like right after each of those conferences, every newspaper cover is uh, the front mm-hmm. page. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it. I've you know, Ashton Kutcher is part of Y Combinator where they do this big demo day, and he did, he gives like a keynote presentation, right? I, Ashton Kutcher, of course, famous for being. Um, on television for that 70s show but now more famous for being part of like funding uh being a part of venture capital and and startup accelerators and things like that the angel investor an angel investor indeed and so <clears throat> these characters uh you know that you would have been the fringes of business like i don't think in the 1980s anyone was tuning in like i sit down i sat down the morning after wwdc and i was like ah oh, i'm gonna watch the like WWDC in 15 minutes on you know on YouTube, and and I did that for Google I/O too, and I, I'm going to do that for E3, all the E3 press conferences. Yeah, like like maybe in the in the 60s, people were like, oh, we got to watch the Woodstock compilation, and now it's like, oh no, let's watch the Apple keynote. Well, I was thinking it was like Oscars or Golden Globes. I would have held that in high esteem at a certain point, but now I would prefer to watch a major uh, keynote. Uh, or conference kind of presentation. It's it's weird. Yeah. And, um, and there's there's gaming keynotes, and then there's there was a really famous. What's the Qualcomm had the weirdest keynote of all time? Do you remember that one? Uh, oh right, where uh, what With happened? Big Bird and oh, right. we're Generation Mobile, and, <laughs> right, right, right. and it was Qualcomm trying to be cool, and they're not really a consumer facing brand, so they didn't have an identity. Well, and I then thought, they just pulled together every pop culture reference they could <laughs> in a 60-minute keynote. Well, because, yeah, so the thing is, these things are actually designed for the press. But, the, you know, at some point, they crossed the threshold of the, of the press. Like, the press just became this middle layer that wasn't really important except for getting the keynote out to everyone else. And then, so, so now they're actually, like, they're these presentations for a general audience, and therefore, they have to be like entertaining, but they, you know, they rarely report that much about the business numbers, right? They'll they'll put like a big number up, but they're not going into great detail. They're not but going I, into very yeah, much specifics. I, I do think these things do have an impact on everyone's lives. So, it, it, of course, you're going to pay attention. Mm-hmm. These it, it, because there's so few companies deciding uh, the object you're holding in your hand all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a small, rarefied group of people that get to make those decisions. So you're like, in a, in a way, it's like a politician, you know, getting up at the podium saying, like, we're going to fix schools. Yeah, but schools. not even a, like a politician. This is bigger because it's cross-country. It's like a world leader. This is the lay of the land, and this is where you'll be for the next five years. Well, what I thought was interesting about if you looked at Google and Apple um, is they delivered a very similar... Uh, keynote. I don't know if you saw the Google I/O keynote and the Apple one, but they, the first thing they both both announced, the thing they're most excited to announce was 
We've got new, and this is for you, at Raf, because you've been talking about this for weeks. We've got new controls on your phone to allow you to see how much time you're using on apps and to block access if you overuse those apps. So yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah. What's the app that you use for for to stop you from using Facebook and stuff? Well, I don't have Facebook. I know but you I have use some self control. Uh, self control by Steve Lambert on the Mac, mm-hmm. and on and then on mobile, I just uh, don't have any of the social apps. Right. Okay. So, so that's the way I could. But now, like built into all of your mobile operating systems, no matter what platform yeah, you I choose. Yeah, I saw that. But uh, on Android, it's really a, a block. But on uh, uh, iOS, it's just a warning, and you can just say okay and continue Instagramming. Right, right, right. But don't you think it's interesting that the thing you were talking about as like a you know fringe artist thing just like three weeks ago is now mainstream popular culture in like yeah, in a, yeah. in an instant. Those two huge companies just said, like, this is how the future, you know, is going to work. You're going, of course, spending too much time in these applications is bad. The artists were right. <laughs> like, and now it's there. It's here for everyone. It's very ideological when you think about it. It's like, and we've talked about this on the podcast previously, right? Like, Well, I, I really don't want to, uh, often artists think that they come up with stuff before others and they think they're being copied. But in this case, I really have to say this been tons of research of every news outlet like the cause know, of anxiety from but artists are often tapping into that and they're tapping into it early and i'm just saying like hey no maybe no no I'm this, saying, hey, this is maybe. a pet peeve of mine no <laughs> this is a pet peeve of mine but when artists say i think uh, we we were early it's because you just pay attention to your peers but mm. other people were there before you i tend to think that tim cook listens to this podcast Okay, this is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I haven't looked at the records, but and he hasn't sent in a field recording. But if he did, it would be of the, yeah. the conference And I'm sure room. they started developing that feature three weeks ago. Right. And I'm just wondering, how come, where's my paycheck, Tim? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I actually do know quite a few product people who listen to this, I don't, and I have no idea why. Anyway, the, the point being that the, the press conference or the keynote or the... I don't know. There's so many different words for these these types of events now. The, the event? Would you say the, it's, it's always an event? Yeah, it's a, it's a type of event where there are lots of... Because it's not a press release. Like Classically, maybe a lot of uh, consumer products would just be released with a document. Well, it's also just, I want to say, like that event is what we see. But usually, WWDC also operates a little like a festival. There are like little workshops and other things that go on for a whole week. Like we send some of our employees down there and it's very expensive, by the way. So we'll send people, it's like we're sending them to Woodstock or something. (laughs) And it's like, you know, we're going to send you down to San Francisco and you'll get to stay in these hotels and you'll attend these workshops. And then you have to bring back stories for the team of what it was like. But how much is it to, to go there? It's expensive. But the point I wanted to make is that, well, it's like a few thousand dollars. Well, how much? Well, like you have to pay okay. for the point I want to make is actually that you can't you to go. You have to win a lottery. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. It's like it's, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it, I think it used to be like, oh man, I don't have a Woodstock ticket, and I was like, oh, I don't have. Yeah, a exactly. Yeah. And then when they're happening, at least in my office, and I, I'd love it to hear if any of our listeners this happens in our office, we broadcast it live as an event, like in the. <laughs> In like a presentation, yeah. say, and certain people like sort of hunger down for the whole, you know, the whole thing and watch it together. Like it's a, like they might as well be watching, um, I don't know, some sort of major performance, like an opera or or some kind of like yeah, I mean, political it, thing. I, I, it's also our age, no, because th- there's still a lot of teenagers who are excited about Coachella. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and, and Coachella this year has kind of made a big deal um, because of Beyonce's performance. Um, but I don't think I've ever... I've, there's any, there was a live stream that everyone at work was tuning into of Coachella. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in some offices they were. Um, and I don't know if you had to win a lottery to get in to get buy a ticket to Coachella. I think you just had to be early enough to buy a ticket. Yeah, well, there is a whole thing with concert tickets in the black market when it's sold out. So right, and I, maybe it's just my yeah. Age. Like, like I, I wanted to go to see Seinfeld, uh, mm-hmm. and there were still some tickets, but they were four hundred bucks each. Okay, well, that's okay. You can afford that, right? No, I can't. That's just one I, flight. I can't. That's a domestic flight. I know, but I'm too Dutch to spend that. <laughs> too Dutch. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I get it. I get it. Austerity. But the point I'm trying to make, I mean, maybe this is too e- This good point is like the, the easy start to our good, our good point, which is that like, hey, these, these kind of press conferences are now actually more like rock concerts. Um, and it's, it's an easy point to make, but you know, the, the net result. Well, uh, yeah, it is. And it's, it's basically the, the, the base of your career, this kind of software presentation. Yes. Yes. Like, and so like when I started out, like, um, you know, more than a decade ago, the, the Steve Jobs presentation was like kind of the quintessent. This is what kind of got the whole ball rolling. And what he was able well, to do. Well, he upped the ante. Like, like mm-hmm. how were software presentations before him? I mean, did you watch anything? The, the, the one, any of them? The, the classic one that people will cite is the Steve oh, the Ballmer. The Steve Ballmer one? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, I didn't even mention Microsoft's developer conference, but like Steve Ballmer's developers, developers, developers moment was sort of like kind of crystallized this out of touch CEO. And, and the way it was out of touch was out of touch with popular culture. Like this... And, and sometimes people will refer back to that moment and others where, oh my God, can you remember a time when CEOs weren't required to be in touch with popular culture, to be in tune with their audience? And I, I find that do you, cultural do you think Steve really Ballmer, Do you think Steve Ballmer's style of presentation and doing business for a long time was very effective and then the times changed or, or was he always a, a mishire? I think that I, I, so I have a bunch of friends who worked at Microsoft and they said, you know, a lot of people actually looked up to Steve Ballmer within the company. I think he became more and more out of touch with the world outside the company, right? Even if you look at that moment, and we'll put it in the show notes, it's like, he's talking to developers, right? I love, and I love this company. Remember, he says like, I love this company. And he's like, developers, yeah. developers, developers, right? And he, yeah, and but he's like, he's like Tony Robbins, retarded cousin. It's a really, well, like crazy you know, presentation. <laughs> regardless of the mental illness in Tony Robbins family, like, uh, like the point is he didn't refer to the customer, right? And I think actually the last 10 years has been, you know, the tech tech industry, maybe it's more like 25 years has pivoted toward like this really deep understanding of the customer in such a way. Yeah. Kind of like a the pop iMac. artist. Or the yeah. iPod, yeah. Exactly. Like we know what's like our our thumb is on the pulse of 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 the of our of our audience. It, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of a shift from like an engineer being excited, like oh, we got a great a great graphics card. Let's mm-hmm. see what we can do with it. And yeah. now it's like oh, how can we make a computer that a three year old can understand? Exactly. And so that also signals this shift from yeah technology first to um, customer first. 
and essentially to this like po- kind of populism within technology. And I think it, you know that was again on display in these conferences that we saw this week where When I say populism, I am referring almost to the political populism of like, you, the people, deserve better. Finally, a company that works for you. If you look at like Apple's rhetoric, for example, they're like, we're the only company that won't like take your data up into the cloud, right? Like, and that we're going to, and it's all encrypted on your device because your data belongs to you, right? And they'll keep, they'll keep emphasizing you within their, their rhetoric. And it's really interesting, right? Because they're, it's like it's they're politically championing, but they're also ideologically championing this idea that we understand the people better than anyone else. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, but but it's it's also interesting that uh, all the companies do keynotes, and Google does one, gets some attention. Facebook did one. I don't think the keynote itself got attention; more the mess that they made uh, around Facebook. Mm-hmm. But other than that, nobody watches the ASUS keynote or the. Nvidia keynote. Well, I mean, that's why like um, CES exists because they do these. Some of these companies can't hold so uh, their own keynote. So Apple used to attend those types of conferences, and they were the first company to say, "You know what? We're going to do things on our schedule and our timeline." And I mean, Microsoft had previously done this, but Apple really like kind of separated from the pack and and started doing these like teaser invites and like you know like you know totally outside of electronic season kind of presentations. Yeah, and they even in their new campus built this great new theater, right? Um, the Steve Jobs Theater, um, specifically to celebrate Steve Jobs, but also to host press conferences as a as like a whole unit of how they operate, um, which I think is interesting. Like, yeah, it's 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 very church like. Like, we're not just we don't just have a message. We're also going to do the architecture and the the clothing and the acoustics and the, yeah, yeah, like the experience matters. Um, and, you know, like, yeah. even if you look at a modern tech company like my own or like if you were to like I visited Kickstarter's offices and other people's offices, the idea of building in a theater is now quite common, right? Like, oh, you wouldn't build an office yeah. without a theater for presentations. <laughs> but some some industries are more secretive. Like Goldman Sachs is not going to do a keynote and say, like, oh, we're going to throw down the economy and make a lot of money. <laughs> but wouldn't that be interesting if they were forced to? Because like slowly like an Apple or Google or someone and started to encroach upon their area of business. Yeah, what, like once once they start doing payments and taking over the banks. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. Like So fintech is like one of the larger uh, growing sectors of the tech scene right now, um, fastest kind of um, uh, grow it, growth and investment. And so outside of AR and VR, like the place people are making money is in financial technology. So it's not that odd to imagine like a bank is going to have to compete against a Steve Jobs style keynote. Yeah, um, and 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 for you as a performance artist, how would you review the the WWDC this year in terms of uh, not the content what they presented, yeah. but the presentation skill? Well, the thing I found remarkable was that, or I find I found somewhat remarkable is that the, a sense of um, of a reverence or a, a, like self reference in terms of like they were making fun of the format on a few occasions. So one of the, the announcements they made was like an improvement to the Animoji and they said announcing a breakthrough technology and they said tongue detection. Now we the, um, the um, <laughs> you know the these like Animoji have t- can detect when your tongue is sticking out so you can stick your tongue out at friends and I, and they were doing this as a joke of the format but also like the yeah you can stick your tongue out and for me it was remarkable because I was like 
wait a second, like I've done presentations as my in my satirical persona where I did, you know, big penis mode or whatever, right? Like, and now they're doing that on stage for a popular audience, right? They're entertaining Man, they us. Really, with their, they really follow you. Huh? But the idea of a feature release as entertainment, like, like just stop yeah. for a second and think about that. It's in, that's, that's yeah, really, it, it's almost like what used to be an Easter egg is now a unique selling point for a platform. Well, it's not only that, it's that to capture our imagination and attention, it's no longer just functionality that's required. It's, it's also this you know, quote unquote, delight or something or, you know, but that, humor. that's kind of like similar to the car industry where at first they were just trying to make the best possible car. And at some point they start introducing sexuality in the marketing of cars. Mm-hmm. And like, well, this will get you laid. Right. Because so once the value economics are like kind of secure, like this is like, this is what you need. Yeah. It types, you know, it, it plays video. Okay. What's above that? Like I, I was, I was watching this demo of, Uh, or a review of like Tesla's uh, model. I think it was not just for them. No, it was for the Model 3, like their new car. And they're talking about all the Easter eggs hidden inside the Tesla software, like Santa Claus mode, which will play like Christmas music and have like, and and turn GPS into like Santa's sleigh and stuff. That's all like built into into the the software. And there's other little kind of hidden gems. But the fact that a car maker... It's the thing that we talked about. Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting because it's like, again, it comes back to this idea of company as entertainer versus like company as like value creator in terms of just utility, right? And it's no longer a yeah. Campbell's soup can. It's like a, a tongue, a unicorn that can tick it, like stick a, it a is sparkly also, tongue out. It's interesting that historically we'll look back and see, oh, that was the moment when the bubble started, when they were focusing too much on the f- frivolous uh, features and not on core features. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we'll look back and like, yeah, that's what won the platform war and the other company was too uh, functional. Well, that's the thing, though. They did. So they they pivoted from a, a, a like a, a meaningful social change, which is like we believe that the world is spending too much time or wasting too much time in, in social media apps and that their privacy is at risk to announcing a new way for you to like narcissistically express yourself by sticking your tongue out as a unicorn. And then right after that, yeah, they announced this yeah. thing called the era of Mimo which again was like humorous <laughs> and then they came out with this like the avatar creation clone? tool yeah this bitmoji clone um and we put in so much effort into making sure you, we could you could represent you must know the bitmoji people there in toronto are they i didn't know that no i don't know the bitmoji well they're in people. canada i'm not sure they're in toronto but uh, they must have been crying when they saw that presentation well i mean snapchat did you know, owns them now and, and paid them a fortune <laughs> to, to. I know own Snapchat thing. just keeps being copied. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of sucks for them. Yeah, sorry, Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to respect them for trying for being ahead of, of the curve and, and taking risks, and then um, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, money eventually trumps uh, and power trumps everything. That's a. It was a, it, interesting what you said that. Um, they start with the digital well-being and we're spending too much time and then they introduce time wasting uh, multiplayer yeah. multiplayer AR which is going to be highly fun and kids will spend a lot of time with it of course well the multiplayer so AR it, thing is really it, it's funny yeah. like the, the, their core mission is to make the devices more intriguing yeah and then they have to say well but we have to admit it's not really good for your eyes and uh, well, also like the the I mean I don't this is a whole I could do a whole episode on this, but the multiplayer AR thing, which both Google and Apple both showcased, is a stepping stone to 
the thing you just don't think is going to happen, but it's like multiple points of view on an AR experience through glasses, right? There's no way you can have yeah. uh, AR glasses if if what you see others can't see. You know, you're like, look at this, it's mm. incredible. And everyone else is like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? That just won't work. So yeah. they had to do this as a stepping stone. No, but I don't think I ever said AR is bullshit. I just thought VR was bullshit. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I, think, I think they could both be absolute um crap and they could also both ruin our lives um no but i think uh, pokemon go already proved that people love ar that they, they just have to make it better mm-hmm. yeah I, I i i never i don't think there's anything near the success of pokemon go in the vr world uh, yeah i know nothing is like here's the thing if you i've lived with vr now for two years in my home and every once in a while i'll get excited i'll play a new game or something like that and then uh, I'll play it and I can play it once. And at the end I'm exhausted. My arms are tired cause I've been swinging them around. I'm like, you know what? Like, that's not what I want to do in my spare time. <laughs> I'd rather go out on a bike no. ride or go for a walk than be in this like, you know, coffin, uh, or sarcophagus of, of, uh, yeah, but I think, I think, I think the good thing about AR is that it's uh, on a device that you already own. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you could just use for three minutes, uh, measure the size of your desk, and then maybe uh, get a, a virtual AR sort of uh, text message from someone, look at it for three minutes. But it's not an immersive thing where you have to have a helmet on your head for half an hour. Yeah, I mean, it really is the next platform. It'll take a few years, um, but it's an... Yeah. It, I, no, I, I, I'm on board with you there. It's, uh, I, I have no doubts. And I'm sure also artists will make fun things. And I, I think I specifically dislike... VR because it seems like a cheap way for museums to make uh, digital environments. It's just a, they should just invest in big creating a holodeck and not a VR helmet. Well, this is kind of a funny refrain. I mean, it's just separate. Maybe it's a separate episode, but like, yeah, the black box theater is super expensive for a museum to put together. They'll all tell you that, right? Like, oh my god, we had to put the sound tiles in. And yeah, the yeah. Projector had to be. Yeah, but it's also expensive to get ship paintings and pay insurance, so they should just shut up. <laughs> You should just shut up. That's your it, it, no, they should. Re- they they always tell new media artists that it's expensive, but they're lying because the uh, real objects are way more expensive. They just tell you that as a negotiation negotiations technique. Yeah, yeah, but our shipping costs are like zero as digital artists, right? So. Yeah, exactly. So you you go to a, a historical painting show and they'll have five projectors uh, with the historical interviews with the artists. But the actual cost of the insurance is like seven million, and the the projectors were like two thousand bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they tell you like, "I'm sorry, we don't have money for projectors," they're lying. Well, hi, here's a question for you, so as to stay on topic. Have you, uh, you so that traditionally, when you you know for a museum opening or something like that, or even a gallery uh, show, but less often, sometimes for festivals, there's a press preview, which is a little bit like these presentations we've been talking about. Where it's like there's a bit of a keynote presentation, like the museum director gets up and they give a little speech and they talk about the ideology behind the show or the you know the theory or whatever. How do that? How does how did those compare to the conferences we've been talking about? Well, I I think that's there's the walkthrough with the artist. That's what I'm most familiar with. Mm-hmm. So maybe a, a day before it opens to the public, uh, I would walk through the exhibition with journalists. Yes, um, but that's quite that's quite intimate. It's not broadcasting. It's a conversation with you and maybe eight to, to ten journalists, and then I've had a, p- a couple of press conferences. But uh, it, it's much more like you're talking to a few people in a circle. 
Like I've had a few shows, um, one in Turkey and another in like Russia where they had like a whole, like it was almost like after a sports event, they had like a table with microphones and then like the press sitting in like rows of seats, like, or like mm-hmm. almost like a white house press conference or something. Yeah. And I found it so bizarre on, on all the, on these several occasions. I was like, this makes no sense. Like, why we're in because you're in the gallery, right? Absolutely right. That it should. Why wouldn't you walk through it and talk about the work in pre, in, in in front of it? Well, I think I think part of it is that a, a lot of the journalists are not uh, uh, experts. They're, they're general journalists, so they don't have a lot of time to get to know the work. So they just want some sound bites quickly. Yeah, but the good point I'm trying to make, I suppose, is like why you know being present in person you know like i said sending someone you know winning the lottery and then sending someone to california for thousands of dollars to be in the church of apple is like there's the physical presence of being there there has to be something important about what's the 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 physical presence of attending an opening at a gallery, um, you know, you'd assume it would be to see the work in person, not to sit in, the pre- in like a conference. Or- yeah, but if you, if you uh, compare it, um, in the case of the, the Apple presentation, they had that table with two iPads and then you'd see things in AR and play with each other. Mm-hmm. So right. they could have not done the keynote and just said like, here's the demo room, go and play and now it write your story. But that is a key component but, of, of one of these things is like a demo or demonstration of the product, right? So there's always the sequence of the, the presentation and then the hands-on area where you mm-hmm. get to play with it. And then you and then when you then the journalists that made the journey to go there have something more to tell than anyone who watched the live stream. Yeah. So for yeah. example, so what I, you're saying in the yeah. case of an exhibition, just dropping journalists into the exhibition, they're just visitors but because they have an intro and they have Mm -hmm. eye contact with the artist and the curator uh, that they have more to say about the exhibition than someone who just walks in Mm -hmm. well i mean like the i've seen the you know i've been involved in curator gallery tours and i think those are closest to like the apple keynote where like the figurehead of the show who is the curator is sort of like and this is in a group show context not a solo show context like you're talking about but is trying to sort of say like this is this is the theme that we're going to explore and this is like why it's important and then they sort of point out or highlight different works um, and they to demonstrate their point right like and yeah and and I I think the I just thought of this but um, what's important is that exhibitions happen in many different countries and so you cannot. Uh, when you write the press release, you can't answer all questions, especially in different countries. So what's they might have insights and questions that you could not have come up with. So it's mm-hmm. even when the journalists in a press event start asking you questions, you might learn something from the way they see it. So I think it really uh, adds a lot. It's not like, as you say, isn't the experience of the exhibition enough to know about the exhibition? But mm-hmm. I really think when you encounter different cultures, it's re- very... Uh, helpful to talk to each other. Okay, so here's my good point then, which is like, how come, you know, why doesn't, when Raphael, you know, has his next solo show, why doesn't he take everyone next door to a stage presentation where he talks about all of the material sourcing he did and all of the, and the ideology well, and the reasons why he's working this on is this. Interesting. This is interesting, and this is where a lot of artists feel different. Some artists say, I want to guide the audience and I want to show them the process so they can see better. 
And some artists say, I want the work to speak for itself. And so mm-hmm. that's a, just, every artist feels differently about that. And that's, and that's the bottom But line. I, I, <laughs> I always compare it to, um, with DVDs, you always had the director's comments, which you could turn on or off with a feature, with, yeah. a, with a button in a menu. And you wouldn't want the director's comments the first time you see the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time you want to see the movie for yourself and make up your own mind. And maybe the second or third time, and then you hear all these insights. It's like, oh, the actors were really stressed at that moment, and the weather was bad, and that's why the scene feels so intense. Yeah. But it, I, I would always want to see the movie without any prior knowledge the first time. No, yeah. I mean, for me, though, all of this like boils down for like I, I'm lean. I lean in obviously the complete opposite direction, which is like you know, and I'm about to go do a quote unquote performance, which will be a keynote presentation and then a demo tank or like um, like similar to the AR. Yeah, thing but you're a performance artist, that. so the the keynote is the work. The keynote. No, is I know, the work. I know. But I I don't know. I'm try. I'm always trying to discern like how. I mean, I, I ended up there through conscious effort, but can I escape it? Is there any way I couldn't do it? Because there are times where I'm asked to do like an installation and I'm like, well, I can't install the work unless I'm allowed to facilitate it with a presentation because the presentation is the work and, and like the work itself on the wall would just be like, that's like an artifact, right? Like there's, if there's no keynote, there's no work. That's what I would say. And I, mm. but, and I think, I think very much more like uh, Apple or Google in that like, the when the phone's just sitting on the table and you don't understand why it's sitting on the table why it does what it does it has very little value the point i'm trying to make is a lot of these keynote presentations these conferences kind of have spun up almost as like a value creation machine which is you know starting simon sinek who's like we've mentioned on the podcast before this idea of like starting with why getting like a a whole bunch of like kind of meaning built into that metal and uh, glass you know but the, 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 the thing where art is different from uh, commercial or popular culture, and mm-hmm. especially from consumer products, is that uh, the, the work is a starting... Maybe it's the same as a consumer product, but the work should be a starting point, and you should not predict where the user wants to take it. And so if, if art's function is to trigger lots of interpretations, then if you start talking too much, you're already shutting off uh, the viewer's imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I can give you a, a very simple example. Uh, Roy Lichtenstein uh, made all the cartoon paintings, and at some point he made these big paintings of brushstrokes. So you see a, a caricature or an image of a brushstroke. So you don't see a brushstroke in, in abstract expressionism. You see the actual brushstroke. You see a frozen human movement, basically. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Liechtenstein, it's a constructed diagram. It's a very rational brushstroke. Um, and the, the main art historical conclusion is that he is making a joke of abstract expressionism. He's uh, making a stylization, of, and it was a reference. I did not know that when I saw it first. So I saw it in the museum without prior knowledge, and my interpretation was like, if you're a painter and you're absolutely bored and you don't know what to paint about, then you paint your brush because it's in front of you. And so it's the most boring thing. It's like, fuck, what should I paint? Well, I guess I have a brush in my hand. I guess I'll paint that. Mm-hmm. And had I known the previous, I would not have come up with that. So I'm really, I've always been very firm that I don't want to tell people what to think. 
Yeah, that's like Barth's the uh, death of the reader, uh, sorry, death of the author and birth of the reader. So like, of course, the reader and the subjectivity of the audience, they reign supreme. That's where like, where we were talking at the beginning of this podcast, though, about like, an Apple or Google or Microsoft or whomever presenting to an audience, not to a reporter, does put them in a position much closer to an artist in that they're they're saying we understand that subjectivity will reign supreme therefore you know yeah. we're going to do our best to kind of steer some of that subjectivity I, I'm, I'm very fascinated with the i've always been fascinated with the idea of building programming languages and my computer science understanding is not at the level that i can understand the architecture of a programming language mm-hmm. but when you make a programming language you make all kinds of choices and you but you can't predict what people come up with later like no one who started uh, writing c++ or, or c++ or whatever language could have predicted that someone would make instagram with that mm-hmm. well, so you know, that's a very, that's why it gets very close to art for me that you start making these sort of sparks that then start burning and just burn in all directions. Well, I think it's because I've been starting to think about how could I be less satirical and more didactic, which is just bear with me for a second. So like most of my career, I've performed in sort of an irreverent way, almost like whatever you're seeing is a satire of the actual thing. But the, you know, the common problem there is that, well, you're not really, you know, furthering anything, Jeremy, you're just like poking fun. Right. So then my thought goes to like, well, what if I just talked about what I was doing or what I was trying to do? And I moved between satire and sincerity um, and in such a way that it was almost like I just gave you all of the information. What you're saying, which I think is really interesting, is like part of you know what's wrapped up in art is the mystery and interpretation, right? What I'm, what I'm leaning toward, and, and it's a disagreement with you, is like, what if art was fully transparent and there were no uh, hidden doors or opportunities to explore. What if it was just like pure data download? Um, here's a gu- like. What if a painting came with a telephone book sized manual that told you how to read it? Now, wh- wh- I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but that's essentially what Apple's doing when it does it. Like it, it, it takes a single feature and it says, "Here's a two. Here's a 20 minute video, like exploring like all of the different." <laughs> you know, uh, materials that went into this, the design ethic, like, um, here's the website with even more detail, right? And I, I'm really fascinated but, but do with you, this. Do you have examples of, uh, because maybe fine art is not the best uh, place to look at that, but maybe TV shows or well, songs I, that tell you how to live and like how to be a better human that you think are good examples? <clears throat> well, I can point to design and I can, I can, I can point to Ray and Charles Eames, who I think are really interesting if you if you take them out of design and you think of them as artists, because what they were trying to do, and then you know through the '30s, '40s, '50s, and '60s, was like reinvent um, American like design ideology, right? And they and they were taking ideas coming out of Bauhaus and popularizing them for um, for a global audience, but primarily for an American audience. And the way that the ways in which the they did, the, <laughs> and the ways in which they did that was by exploding the detail, by talking about their process as an example, right? Like who before then was talking about the process that went into dis- you know, designing and building a chair? Are, are they the inventors of the, the sort of close-ups of materials to get you to want to buy the chair? Well, like, for example, I mean, and, and, and that's why I say Ray and Charles, but Ray, you know, uh, Charles's partner, she was well known to be more the artist. And so she would say, 
we're going to show we designed this wire chair, right? And the, you know, you, and, and Charles, you can talk about the technology of the wire and the chair and how you bend the wire and the design ethos of that. But then I'm going to arrange the wire chair in such a way that like it looks like birds' legs, and then we're going to have a bird in the photo shoot, and we're going to tell a story about this chair in a surrealist context or something like that, right? And like, and so they're just adding a ton of information to a useful object, a chair that wouldn't otherwise have been a part of the narrative of that object. I think embedding narrative in objects is like, is something artists do and they don't talk about it explicitly. I'm just saying, why not? I mean, I think we, we are doing that all the time and pretending that we're not pretending that Liechtenstein didn't embed in his practice a whole like, uh, you know, dictionary of information outside of the work itself pretending that like Chris Burden's yeah. performances didn't also contain all of his, you know, but uh, the, interviews. Here's the, here's the, the issue with that. And you might see this when you're um, uh, training students in an art school, mm-hmm. there's the, there's the talking before the working, uh, which is very free because in your mind, the work is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. So you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to make this work and it, it'll be, it'll be the biggest taco the world has ever seen. And, and then right. people can walk through the taco and then they have to make the taco and they're scared to make it. So they just keep talking and just keep talking, talking, talking and all <laughs> these intentions, good intentions. And then they realize they don't have the money to build the taco and they don't have the resources and they don't have the space and they don't have the permits. And then they have to make a really small taco and like, yeah, yeah. But in my mind it was really big. Mm-hmm. And so my problem, I, I think what you're saying could be done well, but very often, um, the work becomes an afterthought and you don't have that uh, struggle with the material. And the struggle with the material, when you start seeing, hey, this is what I want to say, but this is what the work is actually saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, because if I show this work to someone without them knowing how beautiful it is in my head, and that's the danger of that approach. But, you know, if you're... So I'm saying it could be done well, but it's, it's a dangerous path. Yeah, I mean, but if you're Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller, you're going to say it first, right? Like, because no one believes you that it yeah. should be built, right? And uh, yeah. so there's, I, I think you're making a really good point, which, you know, there's plenty of people have ideas that very few people, people are able to follow through on them. That, that's commonly cited in both art, but also in the tech sector. Um, what's ironic, though, in technology is that because of this culture of the minimum viable product, which is creating... The least amount, putting the least amount of effort into uh, a hypothesis to get an answer about whether your market will respond has resulted in a lot of fictional products coming to market. You see a lot of these on Kickstarter, right? Things that don't like, yet exist, or, or even uh, like weird mock-up meme images of, of yeah, exactly. iPhones and- yeah, and of course, I've done a lot of this stuff, and I, I personally find it an interesting subculture. Which is the in and Google got into trouble with their like. Uh, ledger video that we talked about the in a speculative. previous their speculative design thing, but like the speculative dystopian video. <laughs> but fictional design and or you know objects that don't yet exist, where we just talk about the potential, um, and and you know and speculative design falls in, inside of that. Um, yeah, that is that is like legitimately kind of like becoming a larger and larger slice of the creative pie. <laughs> It it makes sense. Like I completely understand why we were um, we have the information age, and then having an information based practice makes a lot of makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, 
I've been to a lot of digital conferences, and there's always these uh, design thinkers or consultants who, and they're all, all they say all day is like, we need to be more brave, and they never have to prove it. They just mm -hmm. go up on stage and like, we need to think outside the box, and they never have to prove what that is. They just like. <laughs> I think different, so should you. Get off your chair and go into the world and be brave. <laughs> and they never have to come yeah. up with something. They just, like, th th these guys just learn a few, and I'm saying guys, they're usually guys. I, I was sitting next to someone, and he's like, okay, this is how you do it. And he told me how to be a consultant. And he's like, okay, you need to know five keywords. <laughs> like, right now, the keyword is Losomo. Nobody knows what <laughs> Losomo means. It's local social mobile. So you just keep repeating that, and people will start paying you more and more money. Yeah, yeah. It's well, really, it. it's that cynical. Like, uh, you know that guy Shingy? Mm -hmm, yeah. Yeah, he's like, yeah, uh, he's like famous there's a hilarious video and you would think it's a parody and he's just like, yes, we're in information overload so we're going to the era of intimacy and we're going to be more human and, and he never has to make any product so you, you can never say you failed. But this is where I think that, you know, the good point rests is somewhere between this like, yeah, inf completely information-based practice because there you're right. There are I know people who have taken their career from making things into a career of presentations only. In fact, all they do is go yeah. from one presentation yeah, yeah, to the yeah, next. Yeah. And they're yeah, they like become the US what, president. They become like, you know, quote unquote influencers, right? And they're influencing the way people who make things make. And I just think it's really interesting to consider that because and Apple and Google are doing the same thing at a developer conference when they're saying they're, they're trying to build influence around a, a way of making things because they don't make everything anymore, right? They well, make the it, things upon which There's an which example of, of, of uh, Google often making awesome demos that turned out to be a bit photoshopped. Like when they started demoing Google Glass, everyone was like, holy shit, this is the future. Mm-hmm. And then people start wearing them, it turns out they get beat up, and then it turns out that the interface is not as cool as it was in the, the highly After Effects yeah. uh, uh, manipulated video. And now they did that demo of the Google Duplex where the Google uh, AI will call a, uh, a hairstylist or a restaurant to make a reservation. But now there's all this speculation, hey, normally a restaurant picks up and says, hello, this is the name of the restaurant. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that, so it was kind of edited. And hey, um, what if you the restaurant asks a weird question? And so maybe Google is, is uh, glamorizing the product in the presentation. Well, what I found incredible about that demo, <clears throat> which we'll definitely link to, is that it doesn't matter, like that they used reality. It's like when a documentary says based on a true story, like to create value, it do, you're absolutely right. It do, it the at least needs to feel like it's grounded in something that actually happened, because <laughs> we place value mm -hmm. on that still as a society. Other, but I imagine in previous history, this is the way philosophers might have felt, right? Like, believe me, like you have no idea. You know, you're in the mirror phase or something like that. <laughs> believe me, you're you know you are uh, you are the other or something like that. Um, you know, a philosopher has to like create material from observation that changes your perception of reality and i think that that's, that sounds a lot like stand-up comedians you think so like uh have you yeah, ever noticed the that same. the bathroom toilets yeah, are like yeah. Little... what's with these airline seats yeah. <laughs> since the seinfeld have you ever noticed thing but like a Slavoj Žižek doesn't make movies, right? But he he talks. No, I know. I I understand their role, but I think we're often talking about artists. And I think when I just I've I've only taught a few times, but I've noticed that, and I was the same as a student. There's the phase of the idea, and then there's the phase of the material, 
and the idea can fall apart once it hits the material. So people are scared, and mm-hmm. then they just postpone the material. And I've been thinking about, uh, of course, as an artist, you always think about what is art. And I've been thinking, and it, one of the approaches, I think, what art is, is the encounter of a personality and a material. Mm-hmm. And so whatever that material is, but it's still, uh, and, and that includes performance art and everything, that the, if the audience is your material. But it's mm-hmm. still, you can't be a performance artist at home without a video camera. Like, okay, at so some the, point you have to encounter a material. I kind of like this, because the artist is the protagonist and the material is the antagonist. You know, to overcome the material is the artist's great journey. Uh, no, we, no, <laughs> yeah, well, no, 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 no. Because if you start seeing the the material as a as a problem, that's not you. The the idea is that you're in conversation with the material, and the, <laughs> the material will also start giving you ideas. Okay. But I the w- idea is that that you're not too much of a. Imagine you were uh, writing out films, and and you've never done anything with film, and you just tell people what to do, or you're a person who has played with cameras and has played with special effects. Who do you think will be better at? molding the material no i i hear what you're saying i you know i was trying to reconnect it to this sort of standard presentation format or like you know all of these um well everyone we've been talking about kind of if you were at like a google io or an apple thing or steve jobs era or if you're in front of martin luther king everyone sort of follows a very similar similar formula which is like you the people are the protagonist and there is there is something preventing you from being greater than yourself right like there's yeah, there is a, yeah, yeah, there is a yeah. perceived block or pain or, you're only using 20 percent of your brain capacity right? and and if only there was a way to, that you could overcome that and we've you created could, the bicycle for the mind you could finally yeah fulfill your greatest potential right like it's yeah. always the exact same formula in fact there's a, a book on this topic that's well read by nancy duart called resonate she analyzes like all the world, you know, world's best talks from, like I said, from MLK to Steve Jobs, all the best presentations, and she boils it down into like, and here's how you can use PowerPoint <laughs> to do this in your next business presentation, <laughs> right? Which I find really fascinating because, <clears throat> you know, as artists, we operate within that kind of cultural spectrum and that kind of this the way stories are told. And the way you were just describing even the artists romantically in relationship with their material is in relationship to this like idea of achieving a greater potential or achieving progress in yeah. some way. And, and, and the good point you made also is that reality is not important. At that moment, the presentation is the material. So if you, like you said, it doesn't have to be a true story. It just has to have a hint of truth. <laughs> it just has to sound like... Well, I, was re- I was listening to a but podcast. The, but I do think that can backfire because if you promise the laptop will last 12 hours and it actually lasts 15 minutes, that doesn't work. So exactly. So what happens after... Let's talk about what happens after these presentations. So after these presentations, people come out of these rooms... You know, uh, you know these galleries, wherever, with you know just so much hope in their hearts, right? Like you know, they're 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 like hyped to the max. Yeah, it's incredible. I saw a presentation of Eric Schmidt at a a digital conference, and he was the CEO of Google at the time. Mm -hmm. And he said, "And and Google will translate anything you can see in the blink of an eye, and everything." (laughs) And you're like, "Wow, I really believe, and I'm going to switch everything to Google." And this, and then. You use it a month later, and you're like, hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, so it never really lives up to those expectations. And that's part of like what I find interesting about the current state we're living in, which is we're living in an era of consistently deflated expectations. So con- consistently <laughs> inflated in the presentation and then consistently deflated in the reality that's, we live. This is interesting because I've been enjoying that making physical works partly because they're really hard to document and people mm-hmm. often see them on the internet and they, they're like, okay. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, I saw it in real life. Now I understand it. Yeah. I kind of like that lowering expectations. You're actually on the opposite side, which is like the information I'm going to provide you with is going to you know, be meh. It's going to be deflating. And, when, and then <laughs> yeah. when you're there in person, guess it's going to like, you're going to be pumped because <laughs> I set your expectations so low. Yeah, but that was a big critique of post-internet. I think there was several uh, articles about posting it looking better in documentation than in real life. Yeah, yeah. And then some artists have played with that, like Artie Vierkent and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, I think that like the blurred boundaries bef- between the information we receive about reality and reality itself have created this ki- kind of constant cycle of um, excitement and disappointment that I personally find fascinating. I, and I do think it's fueled by this culture of presentation or this culture of information It's very first. similar it's very similar to uh, online relationships and then meeting each other in real life. And some people look terrible in photos and great in uh, real life and the mm. other way around. Yeah, it's all about the camera angle. You got to get that high angle, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know yeah. that I'm... Oh, continue- it's, it's, it's really heartbreaking when I speak to people and, and, and dating in this day and age with the, the apps. And I'm glad I, I got out of the dating game before the apps because it sounds intense <laughs> yeah it doesn't sound like yeah. you have a choice anymore either which i think is no really like uh, yeah yeah and and it seems to me that the most interesting people are the ones who are not putting a lot of time in their online presentation and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know it, 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 um i well, was talking is, to yeah to another net artist uh, young robert leichter yesterday how i was really Nicest, sick of the nicest man, nicest man in internet art. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a cool afternoon because he lives on a houseboat in Amsterdam. And we were sitting on his on the top of his boat, uh, having a nice glass of water with a nice view of the water, and uh, we're talking about the internet because we both started with the internet when it didn't have so much promise. Mm. So there were no keynotes, and uh, I guess there were people saying the internet would be. But when I started, most people were like, "Man, the internet is lame. It's too slow." and yeah, and I was well, like, "Oh, it, this is it, great!" It, it fell off a hype cycle, right? But I, I think I, I did an early interview, maybe in two thousand one or two thousand two, and they were asking me, "What do you think is the future of the internet?" And I was like, "Well, I'm really worried that it's going to become very HD, and it'll basically be a really high resolution uh, interactive TV, and it'll lose its characteristics." And that's kind of what happened. Mm-hmm. It became yeah, it became a a television. I didn't foresee. I, I really didn't foresee the negative uh, uh, sort of addictive quality, but more in the sense of a visual language. But I, I'm drifting off now. But it, it, there was something about the early internet that it uh, it didn't. What did it for you? Was it like more no, dream you, than reality? Yeah, you're discussing is similar to what you you mentioned earlier, which is that the material preceded the information during the early internet. That is to say, yeah, the yeah. doers outnumbered the receivers. But the internet now is mostly described by the receivers outnumbering the creators. So um, 
I don't know. Yeah, that, maybe that's, that's what I'm potentially a point of yeah. view that uh, that makes it feel like less of a, a material or a place you can affect uh, change in, and yeah, therefore and and also that the internet became so high res that it's not so different from real life anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an interesting way of, of thinking about it. Well, speaking of high res, um, we have a field recording here. I don't know if now is the time. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I do like high-res field recordings. This is a super high-res field wrong. recording. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> this is from Francesco. He writes, Francesco here, sound designer and musician based in Italy. I've been following the good point Francesco. for a while now. Last week, Francesco. Oh, yeah, I mispronounced it. I'm sorry. I've been following the good point for a while now. Last week, I found myself taking notes about ideas and new projects while I was listening to you guys. So keep on inspiring people and making us laugh about the seriousness of the art world. In the last years, I've lived in Montreal, Canada, where I worked for a video game company. Since winter is pretty long over there, I had to find... Hey, that's... All right. I guess it's right. Since winter is pretty long over there, I had to find new ways to engage my free time. For this reason, I decided to record a sound every day for a month. Starting in January 2018, I've collected 30 sounds from every kind of source I've edited and put them together to create a sort of audio collage of one of a, my one-month life. You'll find most disparate sounds like me scratching my beard, cracking wood, my colleagues working in the office, helicopters, a basketball match, my girlfriend cooking a tiramisu, a crazy dog. Ooh, It's a way to tell a story, to explore the treadmill and the uniqueness of boredom. I hope you'll dig it. All the best, Francesco. Francesco. Which is kind of like he's uh, he's done a summary of all of our <laughs> uh, field recordings. <laughs> I'll say it's it is incredibly high res. I'd encourage you. That's if you're what not, you call a medley. Yeah, it's a medley. If you're wearing headphones, uh, Francesco made made sure this was a very uh, high quality stereo sound. Um, yeah, use your best headphones for this one. And uh, yeah, you'll be able to hear the crackling of his or scratching of his beard and the cracking of wood. Um, uh, yeah, but it, it's actually, it sounds fantastic, and it's definitely uh, all material. <laughs> no no talk. Yeah. Thank um, you very much. Yeah, thanks Not everyone much for idea. listening. Excellent yeah. execution. Please send in uh, um, your field recordings. We love hearing them. We love hearing from you, um, and we love that you listen. Uh, thanks again. See you next week. Bye. Bye.
Senhores passageiros, acabamos de aterrar no aeroporto Humberto Delgado em Lisboa. Pedimos que permaneçam sentados com os cintos apertados até que o sinal seja desligado. Queiram, por favor, verificar que levam convosco toda a bagagem de mão. E de forma a evitar a queda de objetos juntos, recomendamos precaução na abertura das bagageiras. Relembramos que não é permitido fumar pelo aeroporto, exceto nas zonas assinaladas por efeito. <risos> 